Hello, and welcome to a new season of The Blacklist, where we explore the lives and legacies of classic Black Hollywood stars. Where you all going? Hollywood! Hollywood! Be. But you don't know what it is to look white and be black. <laughs> look at that I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to and the motion picture industry. It has been a long time since our last season, and that was unintentional and won't happen again hopefully, but we've been rebranding the podcast. I've been working on building a brand, Textured Air, which is for the metamorphosis of Black women. This is a community built for and by Black women, looking to discover new and Black things and experiences in their lives. We're looking to create the kind of community that supports the growth of Black women, still searching for themselves, still learning, and still, well, growing, for lack of a better word. We're planning lots of content for the brand, including more podcasts, digital content, which will be found on our YouTube channel, Textured Air, personal essays, articles, and etc. surrounding love, life, beauty, wellness, music, entertainment, and all things celebrating Black womanhood in all its facets and stages and variations. This can all be found at texturedair.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Textured Air, where we'll be posting many updates and having many different kinds of conversations. You can also find this podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podcast.com. Now, let's get into the new season. I spent a lot of time this past year reading and researching for fun, but also because I had no idea what to make this third season about. And I uncovered something that I had no idea even existed in as a profound way that I did. While reading Donald Bogle's Bright Boulevard's Bold Dreams, The Story of Black Hollywood, a novel that I think should be required reading, I was stunned to learn that in the 1920s Hollywood, the biggest African-American star was eight years old. <laughs> so this season, we're going to explore the lives of several of the biggest and most impactful stars in Hollywood history, all of which were children when they made headlines. You've heard endlessly about the lives of stars like Shirley Temple, Mickey Rooney, and Judy Garland. Well, now let me tell you about the roller coaster lives of the original young black Hollywood. This week, our first episode is about the one and only the prince of moving pictures, Sunshine Sammy. So here we go. Ernest Morrison, born December 20th, 1912, go Sag, in New Orleans to parents Ernest Morrison Sr. and Louise Morrison. But it wasn't long after Ernie's birth that his father packed up the entire family and headed west to Hollywood. In the late 1910s and 1920s, business in Hollywood was really finding its footing and becoming a cultural staple. So business was booming all over California, and African Americans were coming from all over the country to stake their claim to a part of it. It wasn't long before Ernest Morrison Sr. found himself employed as a chef for a wealthy oil tycoon, E.L. Duhenny. Duhenny's 
Wealth and power made him a part of California's elite, which placed him in circles with Hollywood's elite. The biggest movie stars and film industry giants always befriended wealthy outsiders, and it was just Ernest Morrison's luck that he found himself among them. All of the time. Now, most of his day was spent in the kitchen, eavesdropping on conversations and gossip that was being had in the living room about the film industry, because he had big plans for his family. This guy was like the original Black Mama Rose. Like, he knew his kids would be stars, so it's not really a coincidence that little Ernie hung around the Doheny household quite a bit, always smiling and laughing and behaving, making the white adults feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Some would say that Ernie Morrison's entry into the film industry was by accident, but I choose to believe that his father had kind of planned this all along. So one day, at the Doheny household, a frequent visitor, John Osborne, stopped by and spotted little Ernie and thought he would be a great addition to the baby Marie Osborne film that they were making and were having a quite difficult time doing so, I might add. Baby Marie Osborne was the first major Hollywood child star whose silent films in the 1910s were, like, a pretty big deal. During the production of one of these films, the children that were cast were behaving like, well, children. And the production team couldn't get the performance that they needed out of the kids because of it. But John Osborne recommended little Ernie because of his sweet nature disposition. And he got on set and nailed it. No crying, no distractions, no biting, or any of that shit that children do. He won everyone over so much so that they nicknamed him Sunshine. And it was his dad who added Sammy to his name. And thus, he became Sunshine Sammy. And a star was born. From 1917 to 1919, a pubescent sunshine Sammy appeared in 14 Baby Marie movies and appeared in the 1918 Paramount short comedy The Sheriff with future Hollywood megastar and rapist, um, and you can read all about that one if you're willing, Fatty Arbuckle. And a crazed, in this movie, was about a crazed fan who became a version of his hero and goes on a mission to rescue a damsel in distress school teacher. Sammy plays a pickaninny who aids Arbuckle and his dog in what, is, in what is referred to as racist humor. The film is lost to history as no known copies survive, and Sammy isn't even properly credited in any of the film's records. However, Sammy's life couldn't have been better at this point. He was working more consistently and in better roles with bigger stars than any black actor in Hollywood. And he was six years old at the time. And just when he thought his life couldn't get any more unreal, Margaret Roach, who he worked on the Baby Marie Osborne films with, introduced Sammy to her husband, Hal Roach, famed Hollywood producer and creator of shows like Laurel and Hardy and The Little Rascals. Hal was immediately smitten with Sammy and cast him in films where Sammy played the sidekick to screen giants like Harold Lloyd, who was considered one of the most influential comedians of the silent era, and Harry Pollard, another vaudevillian comedian who dominated during the silent era. Even if people didn't know the name Sunshine Sammy, because he was credited as many different names over the years, including Sambo, Little Sambo, Piccaninny, and probably much worse. But even if you didn't know his name, you knew his face. Because most times, it was the only black face on screen. But in 1919, 
at the age of seven, Hal Roach signed Sunshine Sammy to a long-term contract, making him the first black movie star to sign a contract with a major studio. Making him the first black movie star to sign a contract with a major producer, and also making sure that everyone knew his name. His family made sure that every second of his time was utilized. His father acted as his manager, handling contracts and deals for him while his mother kept house and made it a stable and strict environment for him. He wasn't an ordinary child. He didn't have time or space to be because he was his family's breadwinner. And the Morrisons made sure Sammy knew how to behave himself around white people on movie sets and be respectful. I wish someone had taught the people Sammy was working with that because Sammy quickly learned that his respectability politics would do him no good because the culture of movie sets was inherently racist and sexist. So while they tried to be nice to Sammy and treat him with respect, their prejudice was so deeply ingrained into the work that they did that they did things to scar Sammy without knowing it, like referring to a lighting technique as nigger lighting, among other disrespectful things. But he had to get used to it because it was just the way things were, and he was lucky beyond belief. And I'm sure that they thought his luck would make Hal Roach's next venture for Sammy a success. Hal Roach created a feature, a segment for Sammy, called the Sunshine Sammy series, starring, of course, the luckiest seven-year-old black kid in all of Hollywood. But only one segment was ever produced. Hal Roach's ambition and belief in Sammy's talent blinded him to the fact that it was 1919. The KKK was back, segregation was alive and well, and no distributor wanted to release a television show starring a young black kid doing non-stereotypical black things to the white masses. It wasn't feasible or lucrative. Both Hal Roach and Sammy were crushed. But that didn't stop Hal, because in 1921, he created the series Our Gang, or more commonly known as The Little Rascals. Sammy is said to have been Roach's inspiration for creating the series and was the first child and originally the only black child cast on the show. When Roach was casting the series, he realized that he was fed up with auditioning adults to play kids and happened upon a group of multiracial kids playing across the street from his office in what he referred to as a realistic manner. And our gang was born. Former Our Gang star Eugene Jackson recalls, about 40,000 children were interviewed. Only 41 were placed under contract with salaries ranging from $37.50 to $75 a week. I know that may not seem like a lot in 2020 dollars, but that salary range is about $540 to $1,100 a week for children. In 1922, a popular African American newspaper, the California Eagle, reported that Sammy signed a five-year contract with the local motion picture corporation calling for a yearly salary of $10,000, which is pleasing to the thousands of admirers of the seven-year-old race lad who is now the highest salaried member of race movies today. At seven years old, he was the most famous and highest paid black actor and his parents took that seriously. Sammy never threw tantrums. He was always well-dressed and well-groomed and well-spoken and charming and everything you'd never expect a seven-year-old to be. His father took him on their huge publicity tours where he was admired by thousands and charmed the masses. Fellow child star Fayard Nicholas once said of Sammy, he was an established star. 
When he arrived home, the entire neighborhood would come out to see him. He had a great big limousine a mile long. Donald Bogle referred to Sammy as the little black prince of moving pictures. The high riding was unlike anything any black star of any caliber had experienced up until this point. And his family, who had gotten into the business as well by this point, as would be expected, saw no limits for Sammy. No barriers, no ceilings. Unfortunately, no black star is immune to glass ceilings, no matter how cute they are. So in 1924, after appearing in 28 episodes of the series, his father pulled Sammy from Arkane, as he had completed his contract with Hal Roach, and his father chose not to renew the contract because he said that Sammy was going to appear in comedies at the Finer Arts Studio. But the reality was that Sammy had grown up, and he didn't look as cute or as pubescent as he once did, and audiences and studios alike took notice of that. He was replaced, and we'll get into the lives of his successors later in the season. So what does a child star who is literally only ever known performing do as a washed-up teenager? He went to New York, of course. He left the show in 1924 to do vaudeville and be a top-billing star alongside acts like Abbott and Costello and Jack Benny like he deserved. He left the show to perform where he could be paid and appreciated for the kind of star that was of his caliber. But that didn't happen exactly the way he thought it would. And it was the late 1920s. By this point, vaudeville was pretty much usurped by cinema. And once sound was introduced into filmmaking, there was really no recovering the art form. Now, his personal life wasn't exactly a walk in the park either. In 1928, his mother Louise sued for divorce twice from his father, because that was a thing that women had to do then, and was successful in her second attempt, and won not only custody of the couple's four daughters, but fun fact, she also won what was called the largest alimony ever granted to a colored woman in California. Random, but very interesting, and I'm always rooting for black women, so you go, girl. Sammy's last film appearance for 11 years was in 1929, in a short called Stepping Along. For a long time, he worked in whatever performance acts he could get, but, like everyone, he returned to Hollywood in 1940, because they always do. He appeared in the Columbia Pictures film Fugitive from a Prison Camp, starring Jack Holt, in 1940. This also remarked his return to a series. After a tour in Australia with his performing partner, Sleepy Williams, producer and director Sam Katzman cast Sammy in Eastside Kids. Again, he was the only black person on the show. In Eastside Kids, which is about a group of tough street kids who are being reformed, Sammy plays Scruno, a tough, well-to-do kid who got mixed up in the wrong crowd. Sammy acted in Eastside Kids for years until the series was morphed into the Bowery Boys series and Sammy left because he didn't like the setup, which is probably code for too racist even for 1944. You can watch all of the Eastside Kids films on YouTube now. When he left the series, he was invited and accepted the invitation to perform with the Four Step Brothers, a tap dancing, singing, performing act quartet, and fun fact, they were the first ever black act to perform at Radio City Music Hall and break television's color barrier. But then the war came. Sammy was drafted into World War II, and like many Hollywood actors, he also served as a USO performer, traveling around the country, keeping the troops entertained, because really, that was all he had ever done in his life. 
but during a car accident while performing in Hawaii, he was injured and left with a permanent limp. After the war was over, he declined to return to the film industry on several occasions, and when asked why, he said he had fond memories of stardom, and those were enough to sustain him. He didn't want to take part in it again. His later years were spent working as a quality control inspector for an aerospace company in Compton. In the 70s, he made a return to the small screen, guest starring in the CBS television show Good Times, and gained a new fan base when film buffs had rediscovered the original cast of Our Gang. In 1987, he was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame, and unlike many of our subjects on this podcast, he was alive at the time of his induction. And in 1989, at the age of 77, Ernie Morrison Jr. died of cancer. By many accounts, he appeared in over 145 films in his life. But at the time of his death, according to the very few obituaries printed, he was mostly forgotten. But Black Hollywood owes an eternal debt of gratitude to him for his work, for sacrificing his childhood to become a legend. I don't think he was sad about the way his career had gone at the end of his life. I'm sure a talent and charisma such as his could have garnered many more roles well into his old age, but he saw what he needed to see and carried Black Hollywood on his back for long enough to create space and opportunities and the ripple effect of which can be traced to present-day Hollywood. So thank you, Sunshine Sammy. I will never again forget everything you've done for all of us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Blacklist, which is hosted, written, and researched by Mariah Woods and brought to you by Textured Air. If you like this, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you're alerted when we drop new episodes. All episodes can be found on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and podcast.com. Be sure to check out our website, TextureAir.com, for more content celebrating black women. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Textured Air for more updates. Until next time.